We are now on the 10th lesson of the summer quarter. And uh, the title of the lesson is Service in the New Temple. It's Ezekiel chapters 44 through 48. This will finish the book of Ezekiel. And uh, Lord, we do thank you for this uh, glorious picture that you give us of this uh, magnificent temple where our Lord will reside in person. And the last words of the of this book are, The Lord is there in that temple. That will be such an awesome uh, thing where you can actually go physically to see him. So we want to help us to understand how Israel will worship you in the millennium. And we pray that you would give us parallels that we can use in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, so the uh, first section is called The Prince and the Sanctuary. The Prince and the Sanctuary. So I'll go ahead and read that. That's verses 1 through 9. Chapter 44, verses 1 through 9. Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince... He shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out by the same way. Then he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. The Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well, see with your eyes and hear with your ears all that I say to you concerning all the statutes of the house of the Lord, and concerning all its laws, and mark well the entrance of the house with all exits of the sanctuary. You shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary, to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made covenant void, this in addition to all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves, but you have set foreigners to keep charge of my sanctuary. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, of all the foreigners who are among the sons of Israel, shall enter my sanctuary. Okay, so in verses 1 and 2, then, any questions about that? Verses 1 and 2 says that the outer east gate shall remain shut for God entered by it. God in the form of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, I, I gave you these uh, pictures again. So if you want to look at the one of the Ezekiel's temple vision. So the east gate is the one that is toward the right on your picture, which has the river running beside it. That is the east gate. That is the one that the Lord will enter when he comes in. And he's saying that 
that gate now is to be shut because he's made it holy. And uh, so, and we saw that in chapter 43, chapter 43, verse 2 says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, and it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell on my face. So this, Jesus will come on his throne chariot, like in chapter 1, which was cool. And he's going to enter that gate. So, I mean, can you imagine being there? I was just thinking. It's like something out of this world. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it will be amazing. So then verse 3, as for the prince, now we're going to try kind of talk about this prince, who this is. He shall sit in it as prince to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the porch of the gate and shall go out the same way. So the prince shall sit in the gate to eat bread before the Lord. Now, that's the second handout I gave you because this, this one is like a floor plan of one of these temple gates, which is like a building, the east gate there. So this is the floor plan of that. So you see the steps going up into it. You see on each side, marked with the letter A there, those are guard rooms. And then on the inner end is called the portico. So that's where the prince will eat. In the portico, I think, um, as far as I can tell. So he will eat before the Lord. That will be an act of worship. So the question is, who is this prince? Anybody have ideas? Yeshua is in the temple. He just came in, remember, in his throne chariot. Yeah, Yeshua is in the temple. And the prince is worshiping by eating in the portico. So, the, you know, there, there is not uh, a unanimous opinion about this. I'll tell you what I think it is. This prince appears to me mortal. He appears to be mortal, like you and I. Okay, and we see that in chapter 45, verse 22. Chapter 45, verse 22, it says, On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land a bull for a sin offering. Now, who needs a sin offering? Someone with a sin nature, don't they? That is why it rules out Jesus as the prince. Another reason it rules out Jesus. And other people have postulated that it's David is the prince that it's talking about here. But think about what David will be like at that time. Is David alive now or dead? King David. Is he alive or dead? King David? King David is dead. So when he is there in the millennium, what will be his status? How can he be there in the millennium? He's, if he's dead now. 
He has to be resurrected. When you're resurrected, do you have a sin nature? No. So the prince cannot be David who needs a sin offering because he has no sin nature any longer. In the millennial kingdom will be very unique in that there will be a mixture of mortals and immortals. We will be the, the some of the immortals in the resur- in our resurrection body, but the people who enter the millennial kingdom in mortal bodies, they will procreate and have children, and um, so there'll be a mix of resurrected people and unresurrected people. And uh, this prince is not resurrected. He's mortal. So I think that the prince is going to be a descendant of King David, um, who is still living. That is, And that is my logic for that. The prince also has sons. If you look at chapter 46, verse 16, you know, the, the commentaries say all sorts of different things about this. But, uh, I mean, it's, to me, it's, this seems the most logical. So chapter 46, verse 16, Thus says the Lord God, If the prince gives a gift out of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. So the prince is having children. So the prince has to be mortal. Resurrected people no longer have children. Your children are all done. So, yeah, so, therefore it cannot be Jesus or David. And now David will be there, and that we saw back in Ezekiel chapter 34 and verses 23 and 24. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Okay. And he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So David will be there. He, it seems, it appears, will be ruling over Israel with his prince under him. I'm thinking, this is, this is just me thinking about this and how to make it fit. And... Um, so Jesus is sinless, David is glorified and now sinless as well. Um, and I have written down Luke 20, and I, I can't remember why I did that, so let me see. You know, I do this a day at a time, a section at a time, and so I forget by the end of the week what the first part of it was about. Luke 20, verse 34. This is about the resurrected. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age, that is the resurrection, and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So the, David will not be having children at that time. So that's I think the prince is an un, unknown thus far descendant of David who will be alive as a mortal in that time. Then verse 4, 
Then he brought me by way of the north gate. So you can see the north gate there. That's on the top of your picture of the temple. To the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Ezekiel is falling down a lot. And it's not from vertigo. So the glory of the Lord filled the house. You know, when you're a kid, a lot of things are awe-inspiring when you're a kid. And as you grow up, that gradually fades. And frankly, life becomes more boring. Don't you think? As you grow up and your wonder fades about things. When we, this kind of stuff shows up, that will never fade again. So this is Isaiah 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So in the millennial kingdom, the Lord's glory will be there to witness in person. There will be a place on earth where we can go to experience the Lord in this way. That will be something better than Disneyland. <laughs> Much better than Disneyland now. So then in verse 6, You shall say to the rebellious ones, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Enough of all your abominations, O house of Israel. You know, in the, in the millennial kingdom, the Lord will rule... How will he rule, you remember? With a rod of iron. He will rule with a rod of iron. So he will be strict. Yeah, Revelations 12:5 says, And she, that's Israel, gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. You know, he's going to be kind. He's going to be gracious. He's going to be gentle, but he will be strict in the millennial kingdom because there will be people who are unsaved as they are born and never get saved. Even in that setting of utopia, it will be utopia. And even in that setting, there will be people who choose against the Lord um, because that's our fallenness. That's what we have to deal with. And... That is our image-bearing status, because the Lord will not overrule our decision. He will allow us to make that, which is frightening. <laughs> but it makes us his image-bearers. I mean, what an honor we have. Verses 7 and 8, When you brought in foreigners uncircumcised in heart, and uncircumcised in flesh to be in my sanctuary to profane it, even my house, when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, for they made my covenant void, because he had told Israel not to allow Gentiles in. Yeah. So that made his covenant void when they did that. This in addition to all your abominations, and you have not kept charge of my holy things yourselves. So when did they do that? Does anybody remember a time when they 
they let uh, foreigners into the temple. I had to think about this. But if you look back in Joshua, Joshua 9, verse 22, remember the Gibeonites? Joshua came in, he was slaughtering, slaughtered Jericho, slaughtered Ai. And then the Gibeonites showed up and they acted like they'd come from very far away because somehow they knew that they had gotten the intel that Israel would not kill people outside of the land of Israel, outside of the land of Canaan. They wouldn't kill them. And so that's what they said. They said they were from far away. And that's and their bread was old and their shoes were worn out, you know. And Joshua said okay and didn't con didn't consult the Lord about that before he agreed to make a covenant with them. And then they found out, and then they couldn't go back on their word because they'd made an oath before the Lord with the Gibeonites. They couldn't go back on it. So this is what Joshua said after finding that out, Joshua 9.22. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, that's the Gibeonites, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you when you are living within our land? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, for the house of my God. So they made the Gibeonites servants in the temple. It, there, it wasn't the temple, there was the tabernacle. That was before the temple was built. So, um, so they brought foreigners into the house of worship. Right there, Joshua did. And that probably continued on from then on. And the Lord never wanted that. The servants in the temple were to be the Levites themselves, Jews. And that's what he is chastising them about here. That was an abomination to him, to have Gentiles in his temple for essentially their whole history. In the millennium, there will be no non-Jews in the temple. It will be purely Jewish. So this brings up a question. What do you do to prepare for worship? The Lord has very detailed ideas about his worship. Very, He's very particular <laughs> about his worship. So what do you do to prepare for worship? Have you even thought about that? I think that is... Yeah, that is very important. You want to uh, clear your accounts. You want to go to First John one nine. Think about, okay, have I been sinning? Have I? Is there a sin unresolved that I need to deal with? Is there someone I need to reconcile with? Is there, you know, so that you go to worship confessed? You know, we, because we do sin. The Lord will cleanse us from that sin if we confess that sin. And that's that's probably the most important thing you can do yeah. to prepare for worship. Yeah. yeah, confession is very uh, practical and it makes you feel much better. Much better. And, you know, so yeah, there's several things, you know. Another thing to do would be to read the section of Scripture we're going to study and think about it. 
and think of some questions. Yeah, so there are things you can do to prepare for worship, but I think that's the most important one right there. Confess your sins. Yeah. Okay, section B is the Levites and their service, and that is verses 10 through 16. Can somebody read verses 10 through 16? Okay, I'll read that part. But the Levites who went far from me, when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary, having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house. They shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to them before their idols and became a stumbling block of iniquity to the house of Israel, therefore I have sworn against them, declares the Lord God, that they shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. And they shall not come near me. They shall not come near to me to serve as a priest to me, nor come near to any of my holy things, to the things that are most holy, but they will bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Yet I will appoint them to keep charge of the house, of all its service, and of all that shall be done in it. But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. Okay, so what does that make you think? Some things are long-lasting. So, verse 10, But the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who went astray from me after their idols, shall bear the punishment for their iniquity. You know, the Levites were originally chosen for special service to the Lord for a certain reason. Does anybody remember that reason? Why the Levites were chosen to be serving the Lord out of all of the tribes? It was after the Exodus. What happened as Moses was up on the mountain? <laughs> no, we remember, yeah. <laughs> They convinced Aaron to make a golden calf, right? And they worshipped the golden calf as the God that brought them out of Egypt. Yeah, so this is what happened after that. Exodus 32, verse 25. Now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. Those are the ones. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. God rewarded the Levites for that. See, that goes against our natural thinking. 
because the Levites went and slaughtered their brethren because Moses told them to. Because God, through Moses, told them to. Um, see, that's faith. Faith is when the Lord tells you to do something that is against your natural tendency. And he does that all the time. <laughs> Go against your natural tendency. That is the walk of faith. Okay, I will do that because you say so, and you know much better than I do what it will work out. Yeah. And so in that instance, the Levites did that to the point of killing their other Jews. That is why they were chosen. So what happened to the Levites? Well, they're human, like the rest of us. And they tend, humans tend to fall away. Their faith varies in time. And so this is from the, the book of the Judges. And we'll see what sort of things the Levites began to do. Judges 17, verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he was staying there. Now where was he staying? He was staying in Ephraim, near a man named Micah. And Micah was an idolater in Ephraim. Then the man departed, this is the Levite, from the city from Bethlehem in Judah to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So, money. So the Levite went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite, that's interesting, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. So that's the sort of stuff that they started to do later. Become a priest of idols. And then remember the prophecy of Eli. I think we talked about that last week. The prophecy to Eli. His sins, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing terrible things regarding the sacrifices, and they were uh, committing adultery with women, and, and the, you know, and they were priests. And yet, our children also are in image bearers and have their own volition too. So that factors in. But so the prophecy to Eli was that his priesthood would be gone. And we'll we'll get to that a little later. But now the Levites are going to be demoted to temple servants. In the time of David, they were more akin to priests. They had more priestly duties. And so they were, in the millennial kingdom, the Levites will be demoted. So under David, this is First Chronicles 23. Don't go there. I'll, I'll go there. Nobody else go there. First Chronicles 23, verse 28 says, For their office, this is the Levites, 
is to assist the sons of Aaron with the service of the house of the Lord in the courts and in the chambers and in the purifying of all holy things, even the work of the service of the house of God, and with the showbread and the fine flour for a grain offering and unleavened wafers or what is baked in the pan or what is well mixed, and all measurements of volume and size. They are to stand every morning to thank and to praise the Lord, and likewise at evening. During the time of David, the uh, Levites were involved in the musical ministry of the church. They were the singers and things like that, and they helped with the, the you know, the showbread and things like that, more, more of the worship. Here in the millennium, they will be the servants in the temple. So sometimes a temporal judgment can be awfully long. This is not an eternal judgment. This is a temporal judgment, but it goes through a thousand years in the millennium. So it's temporal, but it's a long temper. It's a long time. That's right. That's right. The rest of his life. That's right. That is right. Yeah. So that is why we want to be good disciples. Because not of eternal problems. We have no eternal problems whatsoever only because of what Jesus did. But our faithfulness uh, will moderate the quality of our life today and, and our rewards later, which do go on for a long time. A long time. That's why we want to be as good a disciples as we can possibly be. But even though the uh, Levites will be demoted, they still have this promise here. This is Psalm 84.10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the thresholds of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. They're in a good place. They're in the temple. The temple is in the capital of the world. And the temple... Temple, the temple is the nerve center of the capital of the world, and they're there in it. And they see the glory of Jesus all the time. So it's a great place to be, even though they have been demoted. Then verses 15 and 16, But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, okay, now we're going to the priests, who kept charge of my sanctuary, when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer the fat and the blood. They shall enter my sanctuary. They shall come near to my table to minister to me and keep my charge. So they now, this group, is being rewarded. The Zadokite priests. Zadok was in the time of Solomon. And what finally brought about the fulfillment of the prophecy to Eli was when a priest named Abiathar defected to Adonijah. Okay? Adonijah tried to take the throne on his own. And uh, Abiathar and Joab were supporting him in this. And so, but the Zadok was loyal to the Lord's anointed, and that was Solomon. The Lord's anointed was Solomon. 
So that is in 1 Kings uh, verse one, chapter 1, verse 32. Again, don't, you don't have to go there so people don't get lost. Then King David said, this is when um, Bathsheba, Nathan went to Bathsheba and said, hey man, Adonijah is declaring himself king. That means you're get, they're going to execute you. And so she goes to, da to David and tells him this, and so David does something about it. Then King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. And they came into the king's presence. The king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. Let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpet, and say, Long live King Solomon. Then you shall come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne and be king in my place, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So the Lord's anointed is handing down the kingship to the Lord's anointed, his son Solomon. Zadok supported him. David's attitude towards the Lord's anointed was rock solid. Remember, he had a couple of instances where he could have killed Saul, who was trying to kill him. It would have been self-defense. He refused to do it. And why did he refuse? Because Saul was the Lord's anointed. He had been anointed king by Samuel. And Samuel was God's prophet. So he would not touch Saul. So this is, uh, again, stay where you are. 1 Samuel 26, verse 22. Now this is the time when, uh, this is the second time he had the chance. David replied, Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refused to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Now behold, as your life was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me from all distress. David let God take care of Saul, and he did. And when people tried to ingratiate themselves with David by attacking Saul's family, David had them executed. So David was very serious about this, not messing with the Lord's anointed. And that is what Abiathar had done. So, but Zadok did not. And so his descendants get this reward. So sometimes your descendants are rewarded for you, for how you do. And that's a cool thing. There's a lot of encouragements to be a good disciple, to just be... Say, Lord, have your way. Okay, section C, the attire and conduct of Levites. Somebody want to read that, 17 through 23? What chapter? Chapter 44. Yeah, so verses 17 and 18 shall be that when they enter at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments, and wool shall not be on them while they are ministering in the gates of the inner court. And in the house linen turbans shall be on their heads, and linen undergarments shall be on their loins. They shall not gird themselves with anything which makes them sweat. That's good. Nobody likes to be sweaty. 
So the priests descended from Zadok will wear linen garments and turbans inside the inner gates to prevent sweating. Isn't that interesting? It's hot over there. That's right. It's hot over there in Jerusalem. And the Lord doesn't want any sweatiness <laughs> around him. He doesn't want any B.O. maybe. I don't know. But Then verse 19, when they go out into the outer court. So look at your picture again. So this, this inner ring of gates here. Inside there is the inner court. Inside this outer ring of gates is the outer court. So when they go from the inner court to the outer court, they have to change their clothes. When they go out into the outer court, into the outer court to the people, they shall put off their garments in which they have been ministering and lay them in the holy chambers. Then they shall put on other garments so that they will not transmit holiness to the people with their garments. Now, why would they not want to transmit holiness to the people? What happens when you do that? Anybody know? You tend to die. Yeah, you tend to die when you do that. So, um, yeah, exactly. So this is from Numbers, chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, is it? No, wait a minute. No, verse 15. This is concerning when they were moving the uh, the furniture of the tabernacle in their wanderings. Okay, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is to set out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. This holiness is dangerous to people. Holiness is dangerous to people. Kills us. Yeah, you can't look upon God and live. Right, it kills you. Yeah, it's that you know. That is why God has gone to such great lengths to secure our salvation. Just think of the lengths he's gone to that Jesus went through. He loves us. He wants to have fellowship with us, but he kills us <laughs> the way we are. And so he needs to fix that. And he did that with Jesus. So that is great love. We are made holy in him. In him we are made holy, yes. And what a wonderful thing. So verse 20, Also they shall not shave their heads, yet they shall not let their locks grow long. They shall only trim the hair of their heads. So this is part of the dress code for priests. Now, I was in the military. Art was in the military. We had a dress code. You had to have your hair a certain way. It, they had measurements of how long. I had a mustache at that time, how long your mustache could go. Couldn't go past your, the outside of your lips. All that sort of stuff. Dress code. The Lord has dress code. For his priests. That is biblical. Yeah. That is for the that part of the Mosaic Law. Yeah. I mean, they, well, yeah, this is in the millennium here. 
this is not yet in force, but um, know that you know if you want to strictly follow the Mosaic law, that's part of it. Having not not trimming your sideburn, just letting your sideburn go forever. Yeah. So now, do believers have a dress code in the church age? Hmm. Put on the Lord. He does mention hair length. He mentions hair length. This is First uh, Corinthians eleven. This is contrasting men and women, and their hair. But First Corinthians eleven fourteen does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Yeah, well, and you know, John had long hair too. Samson had long hair. Samuel had long hair because they were Nazarites. And that was part of the Nazarite vow, is to not cut your hair. So, as long as you're under the Nazarite vow. And yes, no grapes of any kind. Yeah. So, yeah, so John was a Nazarite from the womb, John the Baptist, so he never cut his hair. Um, you know, Paul did a Nazarite vow, but he ended it, and he cut his hair and gave a sacrifice. That's how the Nazarite vow was written out. But So, the di it helps you to know the dispensation you're living in, to know how to act. We are in the dispensation of the church, so we pay attention to the epistles and what they say. And uh, the others teach us about God and things like that, but they don't teach us practically about how to act. So verse 21, Nor shall any of the priests drink wine when they enter the inner court. Now, did, did some priests drink wine? It's, it's kind of hinted. It's hinted at it. Yeah, it doesn't tell us directly, but it tells us kind of at a glance. This is from Leviticus 10. This is when the, tem the tabernacle was first set up. First set up, and it was just consecrated. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. When the, all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So something just glorious had just happened. And then two of Aaron's sons came up. This is Leviticus 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now, in the same chapter in verses 8 and 9, it gives us the clue about what may have been going on there. Number one, the Lord didn't ask them to do this. They did it on their own. And that's that's a lesson for us. We shouldn't do things the Lord doesn't ask us to do for him. We just do what he tells us. We don't make up stuff for him. Um, because that's the way he wants it. But anyway, verse 8, The Lord then spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you will not die. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations. So that gives us the hint that maybe they had been 
you know, tipping the bottle a little bit. And maybe that's how they came up with this idea. You know, when you're drinking, you don't think very good. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we need to speed up. Section D, the priests and their service. That's 24 through 31. In a dispute, they shall take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. They shall also keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed feasts and sanctify my Sabbaths. They shall not go to a dead person to defile themselves, however, for father, for mother, for son, for daughter, for brother, or for a sister who has not had a husband. They may defile themselves. After he is cleansed, seven days shall elapse for him. On the day that he goes into the sanctuary, into the inner court to minister in the sanctuary, he shall offer his sin offering, declares the Lord God. And it shall be with regard to an inheritance for them that I am their inheritance, and you shall give them no possession in Israel. I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and every devoted thing in Israel shall be theirs. The first of all the first fruits of every kind and every contribution of every kind from all your contributions shall be for the priests. You shall also give to the priest the first of your dough to cause a blessing to rest on your house. The priest shall not eat any bird or beast that has died a natural death or has been torn to pieces. So one of the functions of the priest, verse 24, is that they will act as judges according to the law of King Jesus. They will also oversee the feasts and Sabbath. The justice system will be simplified in the millennium. Jesus will give the law. They will judge by the law. And they will oversee the feasts and the Sabbaths in Israel. In verse 25 through 27, this is for the cleansing of the priests which are required after touching a dead body. Now, this is the, the actual use for the red heifer. Remember, we talked about the red heifer, and the Jews today think the red heifer is necessary to consecrate their third temple. That is not biblical. What is actually biblical is that the, the red heifer is used to cleanse after you come into or are contaminated by a corpse. That's Numbers 19, 13 through 19. It says, Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity, and that is where you use the ashes of the red heifer, heifer, was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has the uncovering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin, that is the red heifer, and flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. And so this water, which has ashes of the red heifer in it, is sprinkled on the person on the day of contamination, on the third day, and on the seventh day. And then he brings an offering, a sin offering, and he's cleansed from contamination with a corpse. That is the biblical use of the red heifer. So then in verse 28, 
The priests do not have a land inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance. And, of course, in the Lord is everything anyone ever needs. So this is part of the last handout I gave you. Here are these things. They're on uh, just beneath Judah and above Benjamin is the holy area of the land. And the part that has a P on it is the priest's portion. And that is, no, that's the prince's portion. Oh, the, the part that says Z, Z on it. That is where the priest's houses will be in the millennium. They, they will have houses there by the temple, but they will have no land of their own because they live from the Lord. And verse 30 says, The first of all the fruits of every kind and every contribution of every kind from all your contributions. So their groceries will be the tithes that are brought by Israel. The tithes that are brought by Israel, which come in under Jesus' rule. So remember, they had problems. My wife is telling me she misses me. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost done. One second. So the, under Jesus' rule, he will rule with a rod of iron and people will bring their tithes so that it will come in. So the question is then, how do we give? How do Should we give? Yes, how do we do it? Again, we want to go to the epistles for us, right? What do the epistles say about giving in the church? And this will be the last thing, and I'll go visit my wife who misses me. 2 Corinthians 9, 5. No, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This is giving. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that, always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So we're to give without coercion. No one is to force us to give. We are to be as generous as we can. We're to give proportionally to how much the Lord has given us. And we are to prepare it ahead of time. And that's what it says in the verse before. It says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift, so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. So you need to think about it and plan and pray, and the Lord will guide you by his Spirit. So Lord, we thank you for the book of Ezekiel. It's what a what a picture it is. And we look forward to it. In Jesus' name, amen.